This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of The Life of Yogananda. Our guest today, Lama Surya Das. He is the author of uh, Awakening the Buddha Within, his latest book, Make Me One with Everything. He is uh, a very learned uh, Buddhist from the uh, Tibetan tradition, and uh, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today, Surya. You're welcome. My pleasure. Surya, before we begin, um, I'm going to make a commercial announcement. I'm looking forward to um, being with you in Lexington, Mass. on May 29th, uh, where we're going to be on a panel together. That's May 29th, uh, 2018. 2018, right. Yes. If anybody's interested, that's 33 Marriott Road in Lexington at the... Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library in Lexington, Mass. Very good, and they can find out details at either of our websites. Right, in Lexington, Mass. So let's let's begin. Um, You are one of the better known of the American Buddhist teachers. You're uh, a New Yorker by birth. What? um, Tell us a bit about the history of. What brought you to uh, Tibetan Buddhism and how you uh, became a Lama? Well, um, Lamas have been around for a long time in our culture. Uh, As you point out in your Vedantic history, going back to the time of Emerson and Thoreau and the Lotus Sutra and um, et cetera back then, and I lived near where they lived, so I think about these things too. Uh, In 1919, Ogden Nash, the great poet, American poet and lyricist, wrote in the New Yorker magazine of all places, with one L, he's a priest. With two L's, he's a beast. (laughs) You know, Yama. But I'll bet a pair of silk pajamas, there aren't any three L llamas. (laughs) That's great. Uh The Dalai Lama has been known to the West since the early, uh, since the 1800s and especially in the 1900s and, of course, become well-known in his current incarnation and Nobel Prize and all. And Tibet has always been a um, utopian uh, vision, kind of, you know, the high ground, something we aspire to, uh, many of us in the mystic traditions, but not that well-known, hidden behind the Himalayas. So it, it's surprising that I got all the way there, but um, I was a peacenik in the 60s and marched for peace and against the war in Vietnam and things like that in college. And then when I graduated in 71, I went to India to seek God or truth or enlightenment. And uh, I had realized that fighting for peace and being an enraged Buddhist wasn't where it was at, you know, and killing in the name of God, as some people were talking about in certain parts of the world, wasn't worth that. And I wanted to become more of an engaged Buddhist and be a peacemaker and a light bearer and in this world and at least find inner peace and wisdom myself. So I went to the Himalayas and I was there most of the seventies and eighties and some of the nineties in ashrams and monasteries. Um, I was in Nimkaroli Baba's Maharaji's ashram with Ram Das, Krishna Das and the other Das brothers. That's where <laughs> I got my name, Surya Das. Ah, I was always light. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I was ashram. 
No, I was not, but I know many people who were, and I wrote about it, and I always found it curious, and maybe you can uh, shed some light on this. I was, You answered one of my questions, which was how you got your name, because you know, Surya yes. Das is very Hindu, and obviously yes. Muhammad is Buddhist. Um, but many people, were, who, or some people, who were uh, with Neem Karoli Baba and you know, Ram Das in the early 70s, became... Uh, Buddhist teachers, you mm-hmm. and yeah. others. Well, when we were in India, it wasn't. We weren't really, you know, there on fellowships that to study uh, Buddhism or Hinduism or comparative religions. Most of us were already done with school, and a few people like Dan Goldman were finishing their PhDs. And he did his in Buddhism actually and psychology, Buddhist psychology. But um, we, it, it was not demarcated in India. We would go from one guru to another. Mm. Um, when the monsoons fell, we'd go up into the mountains to, to get away from the monsoons. And in the winter, we'd go into the plains because the, the mountains were too cold. And so we'd end up with the different gurus and teachers, ashrams, meditation retreats, Sufi saints, um, Indian music masters, sitar masters, and dance masters in Benares on the banks of the Ganges, etc., and this was going on in the 60s and 70s. And, um, of course, the Hare Krishna movement and the Rajneesh movement and the Insight Meditation Mindfulness movement and Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, Dalai Lama and yoga and all these things came over again, you know, really like started to become popular in the 60s and 70s. Thanks to, and you've written about this, Philip, mm-hmm. thanks partly to the PR from people like Baba Ram Das and his bestseller, Be Here Now, and the Beatles spreading the word about their Transcendental Meditation, TM, Transcendental Meditation Guru, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in Rishikesh. The TM is still going and bringing meditation into schools even. Um, so these things really picked up at that time, and many of us had left our pulpits, you know, our churches, our synagogues, our atheistic, scientific, uh, ambitious middle-class homes, and were seeking something. And uh, many of us found it in the East, and then those teachers were bringing it to the West, and some of us stayed there a long time, and then were sent back or brought it back to the West and started what we now see as the meditation centers and meditation movement, mindfulness mm-hmm. movement, the yoga movement, Sufi, dance Sufi movement, um, and other things, Tai Chi, Qigong, vegetarianism, uh, acupuncture, and so on. Right. Uh, Surya, let me ask you a question. I read something, I actually just read it today in doing some additional research on you, and, and I didn't know this, but I, what I read was uh, your best friend's girlfriend, Alison Krauss, was killed during the Kent State shootings. That was in Ohio back, you yes. know, in the, uh, I think it was 1970. And after that, you began pursuing spirituality. H- how did that experience, that trauma, affect you, and how did it, uh, and was that uh, the final sort of like uh, uh, last yes. blow that sort of pushed you into spiritual- spirituality or spiritual pursuits? Yes, good question. Um, I grew up in New York and Long Island, and I'm Jewish on my parents' side, like you, Phil. But the Buddhist, <laughs> on your parents' side, I like that, by, yeah. <laughs> by choice and inclination, and maybe past lives, as some of my Tibetan friends tell me, who knows. Um, I was a junior in high school in 70, and Allison 
was from Pittsburgh. She was at Kent State, and my best high school friend, Barry Levine, was at Kent State, and they were running together, holding hands away from the National Guard at that peace demonstration when the National Guard was ordered to fire, and they shot and killed four students. And uh, that really turned my head around about po radical politics and demonstrations and, you know, just about life in the world. She was 19 and an artist, and we sort of thought we were going to grow up together and, you know, have a future. And all of a sudden, in one minute, she was gone and dead, as were the others. And uh, what people don't remember, you know, due to the incipient racism still in this country, unfortunately, is that at Jackson State, something similar happened a few weeks later, and four, five, six students were killed, black kids, mm -hmm. at Jackson State College in Mississippi, I think. So um, that turned my head around. I really started to think about, instead of fighting for peace and marching for peace, uh, becoming peace and finding inner peace. And I met people like Ram Dass and Allen Ginsberg and others, Swami Satchidananda, some of the holy men and women of the time and poets and people who had been in India and they talked about it. And it sounded good to me and an alternative to the gray 50s and bourgeois post-war American lifestyle my parents brought me up to pursue. So after college, I, I went to Asia. And I, you know, even in college, I started to look into Mahatma Gandhi's writing, and that led to um, Thoreau and Whitman and uh, the Dalai Lama and so on and writings about nonviolence, and that was very helpful. And I started to work on myself a little more uh, through psychology and uh, Gestalt workshops and yoga. And um, then I went to India. And I thought, if you asked my late mother, she would say, and Jeffrey never came back. <laughs> <laughs> He's not even here now. <laughs> no, he is here now. <laughs> Go ahead, Phil. He yeah. was always a good sense here of now. humor about it. <laughs> it was hard for them in the beginning, meaning the first 10 or 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. But, my, um, my son, the you know, llama. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, what's your son doing? Oh, my mother would say, he's studying philosophy in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> or he's studying philosophy in India. That's great. Um, yeah. Now, Surya, there's, there's um, a lot of forms of Buddhism have come here. Zen and Vipassana and all, all the rest. Um, you ended up in a Tibetan lineage, and I'm sure mm -hmm. there's a story about that. Can you, for, for people in the audience who... who uh, aren't familiar with the different forms. Can you uh, tell us briefly, like what what is different about Tibetan Buddhism as compared to the Buddhism that has come to us right. uh, through other parts of Asia, like uh, Japan and Burma and so forth? <clears throat> Buddha was a historical figure who lived from 563 to 483 A.D. He had a long teaching career. He was enlightened when he was 29, so he taught for 45 years, unlike Jesus, who had a short career. And Buddhism spread wildly, meditation, excuse me, nonviolence, and so on, all over the Indian subcontinent, which is huge, big, big, as big as Europe or bigger, and to Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, 
Indonesia, meaning Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and of course the Tibet, Nepal, Mongolia, Japan, Korea, and so on. And then in recent centuries to the West. Um, and every, wherever it went, it changed the society it entered, hopefully in a positive way, let's say, <laughs> and let's assume, and also was changed and adapted, you know, changed by the society it entered by adapting so it could fit in, so the, the rulers would accept it, and, and so on. So um, there are different color monastic robes, but the basics are the same, the goal is the same. Uh, awakening, enlightenment, enlightenment for all, inner peace, uh, a more harmonious and peaceful world, protect the environment, and so on. Buddha himself was quite a social activist. He broke the he was the first to break the caste system in India, the horrific caste system, which still lingers on even today to some extent. He was the first to educate women in mass. You could look it up in history. Only the royal women or rich, a few rich women would get ed educated by tutors until maybe 300, 200 years ago. Um, he had quite an effect in, in his time. And as I said, he taught for 45 years after his great enlightenment, sitting under the bow tree in northern India, outside Benares in Bodh Gaya. So every country kind of developed its own style of Buddhism, just like there's the uh, Catholic Church in Italy is a little different than the uh, Eastern Orthodox churches in Greece and um, Russia, even though they're Catholic, let's say. And it's different than the Protestant churches in Northern Europe and in America. And Buddhism is older than Christianity, so it has also evolved in different countries with different styles and emphasis. So in India, um, in Tibet and so on, Mongolia, Buddhism was quite um, elaborate, not unlike Hinduism, with many archetypal images, so-called gods and goddesses, although there's no real out external gods or goddesses in Buddhist thought. Um, in China and Japan, it developed into the Zen style, which was like a reform or a pendulum swing back to simplicity, wearing brown and black robes, not so much archetypal gods and goddesses and elaborate uh, temples and rituals, more uh, simplicity and meditation and uh, the Zen arts. And in Southern Buddhism, in Indonesia, uh, Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, Burma and Thailand, very monastic. So those are like the roots, those three groups, Southern and Northern and Zen Buddhism. And how it came to this country was with the immigrants, who came from, like, from a lot of Chinese came to the West Coast to build the railroads, so they brought their Buddhism with them. A lot of um, Sanskrit scholars and Buddhists came to Europe, or Europeans studied it in India. But, you know, the British owned India for the imperial period, and, and so they brought it back. Uh, today, we see an American Buddhism's kind of melting pot of all of this, emphasizing meditation, um, gender equality, nonviolence, environmentalism, social activism, um, not so much ritual or cosmology about other lives and rebirth, not so much about other worlds, but just sort of a practical and psychologically astute, trimmed down uh, modern Buddhism.
Mm-hmm. Of course, there's still some pockets of the old world Buddhism here. And when you see the Dalai Lama, you see, you know, the Tibetans are a very old world culture that only encountered modernity in the 1950s. Unlike Judaism and Christianity, which encountered modernity uh, at the time of the Age of Reason and the Western Enlightenment, like in the 1600s, 1700s, the Industrial Revolution changed everything, and universal education, which they didn't have in places like Tibet or Japan. So we have um, Buddhism in America, these Eastern Buddhisms from the different countries, like Zen Buddhism and so on. And then we have American Buddhism, which is syncretistic or the teachers have experienced most of these traditions themselves uh-huh. and try to put forth something practical that anybody can do and, you know, also accommodate advanced people who want to go further. There's some monasticism, there's some ritual, there's some philosophy, but it doesn't emphasize that. And uh, recently the mindfulness movement has really picked up speed. You know, as yoga took off in America without Hinduism, too much Hinduism attached to it, Mindfulness has taken off without a secular mindfulness as a practice anybody can do and benefit from without being a Buddhist or without, you know, being religious. And so this has its pluses and minuses, Mm -hmm. but um, mindfulness is definitely a major part of the Buddhist path from regardless of what school. Right. Uh, uh, Sorry, I wanted to ask you whether we talk about a Vedic tradition of meditation or a Buddhist tradition of meditation, in mindfulness now, for instance, most people that are exposed to it are exposed to, you know, practicing it a few minutes uh, once or twice a day. Uh, I, I read that, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, twice you completed a traditional three-year meditation cloistered retreat at, uh, your, at you know, yes. your teacher's Tibetan monastery. And also, I believe you run like a 100-day intensive retreat uh, yes. west of Austin or whatever. And, you know, Phil and I have both been on meditation courses where for months at a time where I would be spending personally six, eight hours a day in meditation. I don't always find that much meditation easy. I'm not even convinced that doing that much meditation really speeds up uh, what you know I would uh, categorize as my evolution, my growth. Uh, do you think those longer periods of meditation like you've participated in are uh, you know, real uh, 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 shots in the arm to your uh, overall spiritual growth? And do you think they're appropriate to everyone? Or do you think there are some people that uh, that much meditation of any type is too much for? Um, I go along with you on this, Phil. Of course, it's a shot in the arm, but it's not for everybody. It's too much for many, and it's not absolutely necessary. And uh, some of these ancient traditions are from times and places where there was no mobility, where there was no instant communications. You know, if you went somewhere, it took you a few uh, weeks or months to walk there or travel there in a cart. And so then you would stay there a long time. These days you can fly back and forth, you know, and um, visit your parents or your family. I don't know if you can hold a regular job, but, you know, there's a lot more social mobility. So I don't necessarily recommend my own meditation students to go to three-year retreats. Did, did you enjoy, did you enjoy your three-year, did you enjoy your three-year yes. retreats and what, what yes. were they like, your I experiences? Loved the, Mm-hmm. I was prepared for our three-year retreat, and it was one of the first in the West. It started in 1980, and the first one in the West was in 1976 in France. It started by Kalu Rinpoche, and um, I enjoyed it. It wasn't always easy. It was monastic. We didn't 
have weekends or holidays. You know, it was mostly silent. There was a lot of practice, some study, some yoga, a lot of chanting and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be streamlined. But the good news is, you know, it's like, I don't know if this is a good example. I didn't go to law school. I didn't go to med school. But a lot of people, you know, would say that so much of that is not absolutely needed or useful, but it's hard to know which part. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, Surya, um, it sounds like in your teaching, um, uh, in your teaching, you draw from uh, a variety of sources, not just uh, the Tibetan tradition. Um, and in your writing, certainly, you're, you're um, very eclectic in, in the spiritual sources you, you draw upon. But you're mostly identified with not just Tibetan Buddhism, but Dzogchen. Um, yes. <laughs> when people look you up and they see the word Dzogchen, um, mm-hmm. they may not have, might not be familiar with it. So tell us what right. Dzogchen is and why that emphasis. Well, the first important thing about Dzogchen for your spiritual progress is how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> and spell it. <laughs> the first problem. Yeah, how do you spell it? It says in Tibetan, D-Z-O. So that's not a sound we really have in English. Mm. Like a male yak is called, a female yak, it's called a dzo. So it's dzogchen. It's, it means the innate or natural great perfection that we're all Buddhas by nature. Mm. Not Buddhist, God forbid. We're all Buddhas by nature, complete and, you know, fitting in. And we only have to recognize who and what we are. It's only temporary obscurations that veil that fact. So that's different than the general Buddhist gradual path of many lifetimes and going through many different stages until enlightenment. Not to mention the fact that anybody can do it, that you can do it in one lifetime, that women can do it. You know, not every sect in the world agrees women could be priests or women could be saints or women could achieve the highest. So it's a radical and a naked awareness practice not based so much in the rich pantheon of archetypal, I know I keep saying that, gods and goddesses and the Himalayan pantheon, rites and rituals and philosophy and monasticism. It's much more an awareness practice, uh, uh, like self-inquiry, awareness of awareness, clear awareness, open awareness, meditation in all situations, practice. Of course, there's a few different practices in there, but uh, Dzogchen is called the Sama, or the highest teaching of Tibetan Buddhism, and uh, like Mahamudra, it's sister practice, the ultimate perspective, Mahamudra, was Dzogchen, the natural great perfection, which points directly to our innate Buddhiness, what we call Buddha nature, Tathagatagarbha, innate Buddhiness, that's in every, Buddhist believers in everyone and everything, all beings, not just Buddhists, not just religionists, not just human beings, but all beings endowed with this luminous Buddha nature or inner light, clear light, we call it, Dharmakaya. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why nonviolence and vegetarianism even, in many cases, is, uh, is uh, desirable, mm-hmm. although not required. Buddhism isn't very <laughs> uh, dogmatic about that stuff. You don't have to believe in rebirth to meditate and get enlightened. Right etc. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to be a Buddhist. Buddha said anybody could get as enlightened as the Buddha did by practicing such a path. 
Right. Uh, Surya, that was radical 2,600 yeah. years ago, male yeah. or female. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, if you have somebody that uh, were to contact you now, say somebody said, hey, uh, Surya, I knew you back in the day, and I've been reading your stuff. I think it's fascinating. Uh, and I've been working as an engineer for the last 40 years. Uh, I think uh, a meditation is something that would be good for me. I should have started it a long time ago. But, but I know nothing about it, and I'd like to start now. Where do I start? What do I do? Where do I go? What would you recommend to them? Well, I'd say that's a good start, if, you know, if you feel called or looking for something. Mm -hmm. uh, and I might ask, you know, why or what happened and catch up a little. But in general, I recommend them to a few books. Of course, I'm an old book lover. These things can also be found, you know, on audio and on YouTube. But a few books like My Awakening, The Buddha Within, or Thich Nhat Hanh's book, uh, Pieces the Way, or Miracle of Mindfulness, or Joseph Goldstein's uh, basic book, Insight Meditation, or Sharon Salisbury's great book, Loving Kindness. You know, these are basic Buddhist primers. And also to uh, learn to meditate. Go to a meditation class, go to a meditation class or retreat online, but actually do it, you know, every day, daily-ish. Go to a retreat. I have one-day retreats. I just did a two-day retreat non-residential in New York at the Open Center. Uh, all of us teachers, we travel around. We have retreats. They're very uh, modestly priced. People are generally not turned away if they can't pay, especially students. Um, we have five-day and week-long retreats as well as a 100-day retreat. Uh, the mindful people have a, a, a three-month Barry, Massachusetts, that I recommend a lot, or Spirit Rock in Marin County. There's a lot of places you can go. There's a Buddhist university, Naropa University in Boulder. If you want to study or your young person wants to study it or get a you know, BA or MA there, Buddhist psychology especially, um, there's a lot of ways to do it. But the main thing is to get a practice, to have some kind of awareness cultivation practice, to cultivate mindfulness rather than mindlessness and distraction. Um, Surya, mindfulness, meditation, mm -hmm. yoga, something like that. Do the inner work, and then report back. Maybe find a spiritual friend or an elder or a teacher you can relate to, or a community to be part of. That's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Surya, you mentioned uh, the popularity of uh, mindfulness uh, practices um, and the secularization of uh, mm -hmm. techniques that had been associated with Buddhism. Is there concern in the American Buddhist communities yes. uh, similar to the much. concern uh, people have about the secularization um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> potential dilution that comes with uh, yoga being... Uh, yes. So tell, so tell us about that. What are you concerned? Right. Well... There's a, there's a definite concern. We all have our, you know, most of us, we all have our eye on it, and people find themselves in different places on the spectrum. Um, but this is not new, and it's not just related to Eastern religions. There's great concern among the Orthodox Jews in the old country about American Jewry and Reformed and Conservative Jews and female rabbis, which, by the way, are not female rabbis not recognized by the Orthodox rabbis in Israel. So it's very much uh, similar. Uh, there's great concern uh, in, in the Catholic community, in the Vatican, and so on, about the Protestant sects 
but that's a two or three hundred years ago fight that's still going on. And uh, then in America, about other Christian groups like the Quakers, the Mormons, um, the Christian scientists, and so on. So this goes on all over the world in, in this cultural meeting place or marketplace. Um, here we're talking about the bridge or the inter cross-fertilization of East and West. So, of course, we're concerned about throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just having a few moments of mindfulness in the morning, like mental floss mm. for mental hygiene and nothing to do with spirituality, mm -hmm. nothing to do with enlightenment, wisdom development, uh, the mindful life rather than the mindless or worse, addictive life. Um, you know, nothing to do with Buddhist values like unselfishness and generosity and um, enlightenment, basically. So it's similar to yoga. Yoga is fine for exercise or health, but this eight-limbed yoga is the real yoga and uh, a well-rounded spiritual life, including service and generosity and uh, ethics and energy yoga and uh, devotional yoga and meditation yoga, raja yoga, not just physical yoga, hatha yoga. So mantra yoga and bhakti, chanting yoga, and so on, makes it a spiritual life. And yoga means union, so a well-rounded yoga life brings you to union with God or however you conceive it. So a mindfulness alone is probably not enough. As the Dalai Lama, he says the essence of Buddhism is loving kindness, but what he really means is wisdom and compassion. Very good. Phil, uh, not just wisdom, not just enlightenment from the mind up, you know. Also, yeah. mindfulness and kindfulness. How about that? Mm, yeah. Good. I, I think those are extremely important points. Maybe because they, it's so much now of what we see is, is an emphasis on meditation, on yoga, for short term, you know, hey, get, get uh, stressful living. Right. But short -term to just, see, to just uh, teach somebody just that it is unfair to them that there's a, a broader uh, uh, horizon there. Uh, Phil, any, any final questions you have or any final points you'd yes, like to make? Yes, I do. Comment? I do. Yeah. Um, Surya, before we go on from that, yeah. I'd like to say, you know, I don't know if it's exactly unfair to teach them that. It feels like people want and need something and look at the young people's situation today and, you know, the disillusionment with authorities, religious, political, whatever, parental. So, um, I think a little of a good thing is a good thing, and it doesn't mean that's all, you know, it, it, you can see it as doorways, gateways, that they mm -hmm. can follow up and go deeper, um, and just, you know, to present some of the facts right. in right. this discussion, yeah. you mentioned the three-year retreats and the 90-day yeah. retreats and, the, you know, yeah. the one-week retreats. Um, there's also daily practice. Uh, Google, which is quite an institution in itself, it has a Search Inside Yourself program, founded by a guy, a, an engineer named Meng, mm. uh, who's well-known as a jolly good fellow. That's what it says on his business card. And um, they have a Search Inside Yourself program. That's a mindfulness and kind, loving-kindness program. And Meng specializes in the 11 or the 19-second meditation. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, I, I mean, when I, when Meng, I, uh, uh, Surya, when I used to teach... at least be three minutes right. or one well, minute? When Man, I used to you teach know, TM, you did retreats. You did a six-month yeah. mindful retreat. I said, "How about three minutes? One minute?" He said, "Google engineers don't have that long. Yeah. <laughs> Nineteen seconds or eleven seconds yeah. is good if they do it every right, day." Right, right. Uh, no, okay. no. I mean, yeah, uh, I, I agree. I mean, be when happy. I, when, when I taught, 
when I taught when I taught TM, you, you would you know a lot of people started it just to, as a way to release stress every day. But at, at the very least, mm-hmm. you would give them a vision of possibilities. You may never follow up on this, but th- this is the starting point, and yeah, there's a lot a more out there if you're it's interested. A gateway. And, and not yeah, but Phil, go ahead. Yeah. Sir, um, a lot of people uh, turn to inner practice, uh, and often in the name of Buddhism, um, and uh, think that their uh, spiritual lives would advance if they're detached from the world. Um, you mentioned engaged Buddhism. Um, it, it, these days, there's a lot to be concerned about in you know what. And <laughs> what is often dismissed as the world of Maya or illusion. Um, how do you feel about uh, using Buddhist principles and Buddhist practices uh, as a kind of foundation for engagement in the in the world? I think it's better than engagement in the world without a spiritual source or a spiritual resource or an inner center. Um, of course. It can, be, it can get out of balance, but I think it's fine. Engaged Buddhism, probably coined by Thich Nhat Hanh or Sulak Shivaraksha of Thailand 50 years ago, you know, seems like a new movement in Buddhism, but it's really not. As I said, Buddha was a social reformer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Bodhisattva is a spiritual altruist and awakener. It's the model ideal of, Buddha, of a Buddhist. So uh, some outward work and some inner work, just like in the Eight Limbs Yoga, their seva, service to God by serving the lowest, as well as uh, Kundalini Yoga and uh, meditation and Hatha Yoga and Mantra Yoga and devotion. So I think a balance. Um, I think a lot of social activists burn out because mm-hmm. there's always more suffering in the world and you can never you know, solve it all. It's an imperfect world, worldliness or maya the illusory dreams, you know, material things. Uh, so you have to, I think Buddha's greatest teaching was the middle path, and that means moderation and appropriateness, balance. Mm-hmm. Good. Balance. Good. So, you know, balancing outer and inner, ba- balancing alone and with others, balancing uh, work and play, balancing head and heart. You know, the head is like the office, the mind, the heart is like the home. So keep your priorities straight. And then social activists, if they had a more spiritual practice or base or community support, I don't mean financial, I mean like psychological and therapeutic and spiritual support among the community of activists, they would be less prone to burnout. And we know that's a big problem in helping professions as well as social activists. So I think engaged Buddhism is a good thing and there's some great leaders of it. But the problem is when you become an enraged Buddhist. <laughs> that's, that's a little the contradictory. That's like the old Middle East slogan, you know, convert or die. Uh, uh-huh. I'm not sure that God or Allah is down with that. Really. He's probably down on it. Right. Uh, Surya, right. thank you so very much for your time today. Uh, and again, uh, My pleasure. Uh, his book, uh, Awakening the Buddha Within, and the latest book, Make Me uh, One with Everything. Uh, and uh, Phil, what about using the punchline? Speaking together. Yes, <laughs> I'm very proud. I, I think my serious spiritual book is not that serious. It's the only one that has a punchline of a joke <laughs> right. as the title. So yay me! Very good. <laughs> the Jolly Lama.
Bluetooth <laughs> Bluetooth talk to you guys. Cat Always keep your yeah. sense of humor. It, it, it's a, no, Phil guys. mentioned when and you're I'll talking. And I'll see you May again. 29th in Lexington, Phil. Lexington, yes, Mass. I'm looking forward to it. May 29th, 2018 in Lexington, yeah, Massachusetts. If you're curious, we're, look we're at our... We're going to talk. We're going to argue in public. <laughs> <laughs> in the okay. All right. It'll be Thank fun. You.